the culture forward and the conversation of the work that leaves us wanting more. Oh, damn. <laughs> this podcast will make you laugh, but most importantly, it's going to make you think. Performing Black is a celebration of black people and black art. Love, of course. What's good, y'all? Welcome back to Performing Black. We are here today, excited for this discussion, y'all. We are hopping into... Kenzie, let them know what we're talking about. So today, we are talking about the film One Night in Miami, and it's going to be such a great conversation because apparently... (laughs) A.T. and I are not on the same side of the fence for this particular film performance. That's correct. (laughs) So it's going to be a hot, yes, it's going to be a hot, hot, hot conversation. But before we get into that, we want to talk about black folks in the United States, where we're at, how we're feeling, what's going on, what what are we we starting with, A.T.? Well, first of all, these coronavirus vaccines, um, (laughs) they're not being distributed very much. So far, 1% of the population has been vaccinated, and it's a slow-moving process, y'all. Is that still true? Only 1%? I haven't heard that. I just read that. Yeah? Wow. Well, y'all's new president just ordered $200 million so that all of us can receive it. But, you know, many of y'all are still have trepidation about receiving this vaccine. I keep hearing my friend today was like, uh, well, you know, Hank Aaron just died. And a week before he died, he got the vaccine. What's in that vaccine? I said, girl... <laughs> Now, I will say I have heard that the second round is a bit more harsh on the body than the first round of the vaccine. People are reporting that body aches all over are much more intense than what they had in the first rounds, which was just kind of arm pain. But it seems to be effective, or so we hope. Yeah, no, I read this article as well that... Um uh, Anthony Fauci cried when he spoke to the people at Pfizer. I believe it was Pfizer. He cried because they told him that it was like 98 or 99 percent efficacy, or had 99 percent efficacy, and he yes. cried it, it exceeded his expectation. So, y'all, Truvada ain't even that efficient. Oh my lord! Oh come <laughs> on! What are we gonna do with gays if they vagina? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> y'all go get this vaccine, okay? Go get this vaccine. Let's keep let's let's try to purify, preserve, not purify. Let's try to preserve black folk, okay? Because coronavirus is taking our community out. So y'all get up on this vaccine. Yes, please, and stay in the house. 
What else is happening with black folk in America, Kenzie? Well, it looks like they are stamping our um, feminist icon and our guide to freedom, Harriet Tubman, on the $20 bill. And the racists in the United States are really showing and revealing how they really and truly see this decision. Oh, I haven't been paying attention to them. Do I care to hear what they've said? I haven't, well, of course, we're not paying attention to them. I haven't seen exactly what they said, but I just saw, like, a title that, that, that spoke about how the racists are speaking out about this uh, erasure of Andrew Jackson and how they feel about seeing this Black woman on this $20 bill. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, I personally am, like, not necessarily wanting to see Harriet Tubman, not because I don't think she's an important figure, but I'm just like, you all can create these symbols, but I am still of the belief that this country needs to have a ceremonial moment where Mm -hmm. they denounce and apologize and atone for this country's greatest sin. And it's quite ironic that Black folks started as the first order of currency in this country, and now her body is being slapped onto a piece of currency. It's, Uh, you can't make it up. Come on, AT. That's good. That's real good. Absolutely. You know, and so maybe, so then maybe, you know, she's a, she represents that. You know, I, 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 I appreciate you saying that. I, I, now that makes me welcome a $20 bill with Harriet on it because we were, we were the first identification of currency. Our labor built this country and made it what it is. And, of course, that just can't be denied, which is why I say that this country, until this country atones for that heinous act, this $20 bill, you know, taking down monuments, it's, it's for not. It's all performative. A performative act, performativity. And that's why we here are performing Black. What else yes. is going on with Black folk, A.T.? Well, it's some exciting news for our trans folk out there who might be in uh, the military, Biden is overturning the transgender ban for those who are in the service. Um, this was, of course, an order that Trump in, put in place during his tenure as president, uh, and Biden has begun to overturn this ban, and that is really exciting news for those who are involved in the military. It's exciting news for you know the military. It's exciting news because trans lives matter. And they should be able to be in any position in U.S. life, in U.S. society. They should be able to take up space anywhere. So, you know, I think it represents something much larger than just the military. You know, I do understand that the military has this longstanding history of oppression and discrimination. And so that is really important. And terror around the world, but we're going to stay on topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but no, you're right. Terror terror around the world, but also just oppression in this country. Oppression and, you know, discrimination on who gets to enter, who gets to serve. And it's not right. So while that is beautiful, it also represents this larger charge to allow the presence of transness to be in all spaces. And so it's very exciting to see Biden overturn that. He's been overturning a lot, you know, thankfully, well, or not thankfully, he has also put back the restrictions on international travel. Yes. Forgive my student loans while you're at it, baby. How about that? (laughs) 
Well, black folk, y'all stay up. Go get this vaccine. Let's get into some more fun stuff. I will be done. <laughs> Mahalia Jackson has a couple biopics being made about her that'll be coming out quite soon. One starring the singer known as Lettucey, and another one with our actress friend and singer, last seen in the color purple, y'all know which is my favorite, uh, Danielle Brooks. Well, I'll certainly be watching the one with Lettucey. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot concede that I'll be watching the other. I am, uh, you know, this is a show that analyzes things. So, I mean, you know, I support all black women, but I, um, Danielle Brooks' performances thus far do not speak to me. I did not get to see her in The Color Purple, but in the work that I have seen her on, Master of None, Orange is the New Black, I just don't see it for her. But let us see. I'm here for this career because let us see also is will be in B-Boy Blues. And she's also going to be yes. in The Life at yes. um, York City Center. Um, what's Directed by Billy Porter. <clears throat> Directed by Billy Porter. What's the name of that series, though? It's Encores. Encores. There we go. City Center Encores. But I am excited to see Let Us See. Let Us See is forging this great career in acting. She also has the film B-Boy Blues that's going to be directed by the very uh, troubling Jesse Smollett. But yes. she's also, she also will be starring in The Life, and she is reprising the role uh, that Lilius White won the Tony for. Now, you did see a preview of that. So they released a clip of her sinking. <laughs> and Kinsey, <laughs> what was your reaction? <laughs> oh, my God. So I, let me just say I do love Lettucey. I love her singing voice. I love her presence. I think she's going to do great. What was problematic for me was that I did not <laughs> recognize the song. And I know that show very well. That show won... The t- it was that show was on Broadway and Lilius White won the Tony. I want to say in 1999 or 2000. This is around the time that uh oh, am I about to tell my age? <laughs> well, it's okay because I look good. Go ahead, millennial. Yes. Oh, I am still a millennial. Thank you for saying that. I am still a millennial. <laughs> so. She won- this is around the time I was about to graduate high school and enter college for musical theater. So I was I was a musical theater baby. These were so I had remember like well you don't remember. I had a car and I had a five disc changer so we could play CDs. And in my car, you either heard gospel, a Broadway play, or you heard some ignorant ass trap music. And it was very <laughs> it was very interesting because people were, I mean, I'm talking about that gutter shit, you know? And people were like, you listen to this? Yes, I'm from <laughs> Georgia. Don't do me. <laughs> but anyway, I was a musical theater baby where I had tons of, of original Broadway cast CDs. I used to study and listen to the life over and over and over again. And I think I must have listened to it after I saw it on the Tony. So I want to say that Tony happened in 1999. That was 1997, excuse me. That was the year I was born. You're fucking kidding me. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, that was that was a lot for me to take in right there. <laughs> you know I'm bringing in that. Ba- you know I'm bringing back that baby. <laughs> That was a lot. <laughs> Let's go back to Mahalia. We're excited for these biopics. I don't know when they come out. You know, Mahalia, you know, they're going to sing her iconic Sooner Will Be Done, which was featured in the film Imitation of Life, 1959. Now, another biopic coming out is two about Aretha Franklin, which will both be out this year, one of which is starring Cynthia Erivo playing... Aretha, in the Genius Biopic for National Geographic, which will be released in March. On the other hand, Jennifer Hudson's Aretha Biopic will be coming out in August, and for that one, I'm so excited. There were crickets, and and, I, and crickets needed to be there, so we will definitely put... <laughs> crickets needed to be there, but, you know, the... I have such a problem with Cynthia Revo. My first problem is petty, and then my second problem <laughs> is real. My first problem is that I don't like nobody getting into nobody's relationship and stealing somebody's partner. You know, the 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 streets say that she got into Lena Waite's relationship, broke up that happy home, made her divorce a woman, and now they are together. And I think that's super whack. I really, really do. I think it's super whack. Of course, that's not all on Cynthia. It's on Lena Waithe. And then you going to come in with this actress who is arrogant, who butchers the American accent, was terrible in Harriet. I expect her to be terrible in Aretha as I saw the trailer, sounding a mess, yeah. you know. I just think it's, it's, it's whack. That accent on the trailer made me cringe, like seriously. I was like, where is she supposed to be from? And why? Right. But we are excited for Jennifer Hudson's movie version of this. We definitely are. Yes. Yeah. We know that Jennifer is going to sing down. I'm excited to see my good sister, Saquon Simblo, play her sister in the biopic. Hopefully we can get her on the show. I'm pretty sure we can. Everybody, fingers crossed. What are your thoughts about the sh- about the upcoming Aretha biopic with Jennifer Hudson? I think it's going to be phenomenal. There are a lot of Broadway uh, talents involved in the movie. Haley Kilgore is involved. Like you said, Saquon's involved. Right. Um, and then comedian, is it Marlon Wayans? Is he the one that's in it? Is that the brother that's doing it? Yeah. Yeah, Marlon. He's, right. he's playing Aretha's husband. Yeah. So that should be interesting. I saw some. Right? Yes. I saw some background clips of them of Jennifer rehearsing "Ain't No Way," and Marlon was acting the fool, t- taking his pants down while she was singing, just making jokes. But I'm very excited to see their dynamic play out on screen. It is time to get into this amazing conversation of one night in Miami. A.T., get in there. What are your thoughts? Okay, are y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for it? Okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. One night in Miami bored me to the point that I had to step away from the laptop for quite a few minutes in the middle of it because I wanted to be respectful of the work and give it its full attention, but it became hard for me 
to watch it all the way through, quite honestly, because the performances in the first half of the film were not giving me, you know, energy that was drawing me in. But once I sat back down and I paid attention to what was happening, I then noticed that a lot of the actors involved are from the musical theater world. We have Nicolette Robinson, who was last seen in A Waitress on Broadway. Jeremy Pope, who plays Jackie Wilson, is involved for a brief moment in the film. Jakina Calacango, who was most recently in Slave Play on Broadway. And she was Nettie in The Color Purple when I saw it. And Leslie Odom Jr., who most, most people probably know from Hamilton. I think there is a disconnect of musical theater actors going to film sometimes because what we're used to doing on the Broadway stage is a kind of hyped up performance that doesn't require as much acting as this script called for. And so that brought the film down for me. But I will say I loved the performances of Kingsley Benadir, who played Malcolm X, and Eli Goray, who played Cassius Clay. And that is my take on One Night in Miami. I actually thoroughly enjoyed this film. I think that this was a great first film for director Regina King. Um, I do agree that the beginning of the film is quite slow. The first half of the film is super slow. It is. I agree. And not only is it slow, you're trying to figure out what this film is about. And it does take some time to really understand what the film is about and what the film is trying to do. So I understand why A.T. walked away from the screen. Um, It wasn't so slow for me to walk away. I love historical reimaginings. I um, love any story about Malcolm X. I thought that Aldous Hodge gives a very understated, and I mean that in a positive way. I'm basically saying that he's simple. I think that he gives a very simple but beautiful uh, and a sonically beautiful rendition of Jim Brown. I thought Mm -hmm. Eli Gorey was charming and and wonderful sonically as mm-hmm. Cassius Clay. I keep using the word sonically so you can tell that these people worked hard on the sound of these people and the at sound was very important. Can't, um, we'll get to accents later. <laughs> um, I thought that this was an activist movie on many levels. Mm. I thought that it also was making a statement that was gesturing to the contemporary moment that we're living. And I was able to see that through the slowness because the first half of the film is, it is challenging to get through. I'm not going to say it's not, you know, I'm not going to say it's not. It is a little challenging to get through. But I do think that from the rooftop scene on, which is, you know, the la- the later part of the movie, yeah. it's really good. It's just also good to see these men in conversation. We also must know that this film was a play first. Yes. And I think that that is what you are experiencing in your understanding of the play. I think that you are, re- I mean, the film, 
you are really kind of hearing this theatricality that's happening and trying to negotiate how it is captured on the cinematic screen, on mm-hmm. the big screen. Um, I don't think those musical theater actors, because the thing is, is that I think you, when you say Nicolette Robinson, that's that's the woman who plays so, Sam Cooke's wife, right? Right, that's Barbara Cooke. So Jasmine Cephas, I believe, there's something that happened. It seems she was recast. So Nicolette ended up playing her Barbara in the oh, film. Jasmine was originally slated, but I believe there was a recast that happened. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, I wonder what's the drama with that. Oh, that's wild. Also to note with that casting, Leslie Odom Jr. and Nicolette Robertson are actually married to one another. Oh, that's his wife. Yes. Oh, okay. They're, they're expecting a child. Yes. And it's interesting, Jasmine Cephas Jones, like you said, was in Hamilton with him. And she is married to Anthony Ramos, or Ramos, sorry, who was also involved in Hamilton. So there was a little Hamilton crew on the film. Oh, how how incestuous. <laughs> Come on, let's 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 get back to our critical thought. Let's contextualize this film. Let's talk about it. So this film takes place on the night after Cassius Clay wins against Sonny Liston, defeats him in the boxing match, and the four of these men convene in a hotel room after the match, celebrating his win. But it doesn't really doesn't really become a celebration. It turns into really a conversation amongst them throughout the night. And this is this event did really happen though, right? Yes, so this happened in 1964, obviously, in Miami. They did meet. Now, what I've learned is that it seems as if they were friend, like they were friendly in terms of like, we are all celebrity and Black mm. men. I am unsure if they had the close relationships that this movie suggests or that the play mm-hmm. suggests. And who is the playwright? Do we have that information? Kemp Powers who also wrote the movie Soul for Pixar most recently. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Okay. That's interesting. So he wrote the film, he wrote the screenplay for Soul. He wrote the play One Night in Miami. And this play was produced where? And it premiered in LA at the Rogue Machine Theater in June of 2013. Yes, it also won three LA Drama Critics Circle Awards, four NAACP Theater Awards for Best Playwright, Best Director, Best Ensemble Cast, and Best Producer. And it also won the LA Weekly Theater Awards for Playwriting and Direction. Come on, Mr. Powers. And I think it's very interesting, too, that it had its European premiere at the Don uh, Don Moore Warehouse in London. And it was the first dramatic portrayal of of Muhammad Ali after his death in 2016. He died at the age of 74. Um, So, yeah, this play has had a life. And here in 2021, it has its release as a feature film. And to add a bit more context to this film, so I don't know that we mentioned the actual date that it takes place on, but it's February 25th of 1964 is when all of these men meet. And... The film ends with a quote by Malcolm X that he made in 1965. And it's also noted that both Sam Cooke and Malcolm X were deceased um, less than a year after the anniversary of that meeting. Yes, actually, Sam Cooke died that same year. He was shot and murdered um, at a hotel 
by the manager, it states that um, there was a scandal, basically, that uh, Sam Cooke had raped a young woman, and he was threatening the manager of the hotel as she shot and killed him three times. She shot him three times, and and he died. Uh, But the family speculates that something else has happened, and they have been trying to pursue that. Um, And um, speaking to, you know, a source from the streets, they also feel like because Sam Cooke was smart in having his masters. He talks about in the film how owning the masters to his work and things like that, that the music industry execs felt mm. that he was too powerful and that he would set a precedence for other artists. And so it is believed that he was set up and murdered. But uh, that scandal did not tarnish his legacy as, you know, when he did pass away, thousands of people took to the streets to, you know voice Mm -hmm. their emotions about Cook's death. So his reputation was not tarnished. He still was considered, you know, a huge figure in music. And I would say a huge figure in the struggle, as we know in every (laughs) civil rights film. They always a change play. is gonna come. Yes, a change is gonna come. But let's get into this work. Let's talk about it. Let's like really sink our teeth in it and discuss one night in Miami. Um, you know, I thought that it was a beautiful portrayal of the ways in which black men can come together and mm-hmm. be vulnerable with each other. You know, have conversations and debate and and the emotions that arise. Within that, you know, I also thought that, you know, King King's portrayal of the vulner- mm. vulnerability of men was quite beautiful, particularly with the character of Malcolm X. I really enjoyed when Jim Brown gave his insight to Malcolm X toward the end of the film. That was a tender moment in which he kind of gu- guided him to temper himself and to lead with love for his brother because, you know, Malcolm had kind of ripped into Sam Cooke about making activist music like Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. He played that for Sam Cooke and told him that if a white man from Minnesota can write activist work about the predicament of the Black body in this country, why can't he as well, right about his own people. Yes, and he, but also in that moment between Jim Brown and Malcolm X, I think what Jim Brown also was getting at in that, like, why are you tearing down basically one's agency, you know, and also trying to judge the ways in mm-hmm. which, you know, people fight, you know? And I think for me, what came up for me was the idea of capitalism. Yeah. Because that is what Sam Cooke kept focusing on. He's like, I'm making money. You know, I'm doing this thing. I I own my music. And in that, I am taking a stance. I am standing as a Black man. I'm taking ownership Mm -hmm. of the work that I do. And that is uncommon in my industry. You know, so there's this conversation that happens basically being like, why are you trying to say that I am not fighting? You know, why are you trying to say that your way is better than mine? And it just made me think about the current political moment that we're in now, you know, because I think that that has been a conversation, at least in my circle of, 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 of confidants, mm-hmm. you know, I am of the more radical perspective in 
what we need to do to seek liberation. I have many friends who don't align with that. You know, I had one friend, actually a mutual friend of ours, I won't say his name, but he agreed that we should take a more radical approach, but he stated, Mm. he was like, I'm not built for that. And I felt that that was a very honest moment, you know, when our friend said that, you know, he was like, I'm not built for that. And so my work is in in healthcare. And so Mm -hmm. I choose to fight in that way. You know, and so I think that there is the, there is this conversation that has been happening in U.S. politics for many, many, many years, where instead of trying to judge the ways in which we fight, why can't we just take our positions and see how these these ways in which we want to seek justice? How can they align? How can they come together? Because everybody can't be the martyr. Everyone can't. You know, and and that quote that you mentioned, I think it's worth saying. The quote is, it's a time for martyrs, and if I am to be one, it will be for the course of brotherhood. That's the only thing that yes. can save this country. That's the quote that closes the film. Sam Cooke dies at the end of the year. You said this event happened in February. He dies in December 1964. This quote that we just read happened on February 19th in 1965, and two, day, two days later, Malcolm X is assassinated on February 21st, 1965. And so that's very interesting to know that this conversation takes place really right before these two men leave their li- lose their lives. Yes. And they're having this very critical conversation about fighting. And they both, we definitely know Malcolm, but they both, you know, quite possibly die because of the struggle. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that makes the impact of this film very important. I will say, too, in that discussion that Jim Brown and Malcolm had, he he also mentions how he finds it interesting that Malcolm, being a light-skinned Black man, is so militant. And I think that's also an area of discussion. It seemed like he kind of brought up this point that he was doing it to perform his blackness and to almost try to fit in with a struggle. And I feel like this is a conversation that still goes on today as to where light-skinned black folk fit in and how they assert or don't uh, their privilege or how they use it to their advantage or not, really. And it really, at the end of the day, doesn't get us anywhere to me because we're all black and we all we're all in this struggle together. So let us work together and use the tools we must to push forward. That's very interesting you say that. I think you're right that that is very present in contemporary times. I think that Sean King gets that critique often. Um, I mean, he also gets the critique of like, you know, um, investing in trauma porn in terms of always... Mm posting and 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 gesturing us toward these heinous acts and usually that come with a video and so people have not only questioned his light skinness but also how how is what you're doing safe how is it not violent for black people um, so I think those conversations mm-hmm. are similar and you're right it doesn't matter you know I was actually having this conversation with a friend, Actually, this morning, you know, I was just like, the problem is that we're making Blackness complicated. 
you know, everyone has their interpretation of blackness or they want to be like, yeah, well, I'm Trini American. I'm West African. And I'm just like, in this country, there are so many representations of the diaspora. But guess what? We all are black. Black does not have to look like any particular thing. It does not have to sound like any particular thing. That's the beauty of Blackness, is that it is so vast and so wide Mm. and so full that if you are mixed race, if you are from the, the continent, or if you're from the islands, it makes no difference because the foundation is Black. And that's all that matters, you know? The specificity within it, that's an intra conversation that we do need to have, but that's a conversation that we need to have together. But in mm-hmm. terms of this outward national dialogue, we black, and that's enough. And it is beautiful, regardless of what it looks like. And stand in it fully. Yes, and that's what I really think that this film was gesturing at, you know, that critique of, of the conversation that has continued to happen and as you said that that actually is not particularly productive and i was able to glean that from what i was seeing and for me that was powerful that was that allowed me to push through the slowness of the film you know i also just thought the film was super black and we'll talk more about that in a bit but i just thought the film was super black too i do want to talk too about respectability politics in this and how it comes to play amongst these men, it's, and it also kind of has to do, I guess, with the religious and celebrity nature of them all, and even their own upbringings, because there's often the kind of commentary and banter about, you know, Malcolm not owning anything, basically, that he had. He didn't own his house. Uh, The Nation of Islam owned it, uh, his car, and even the hotel room that they were in for most of the film, he didn't really know what was in the refrigerator except vanilla ice cream. He hadn't made the purchases. Everything's pretty much done for him or handed to him. And the rest of these men have, quote unquote, jobs, they like to say. Um, they like to comment on that a lot. Well, they're all rich, except for Malcolm, right? Because I did mention the word capitalism, Jim Brown is an NFL star that's transitioning into being a film star. Sam Cooke is a successful musician. Muhammad Ali is a young man. What is he, 21, 22 years old? 22. 22 years old Mm -hmm. and is a heavyweight title. And we, you know, has the heavyweight title. He's a heavyweight champion. And we know that that comes with a considerable prize. You know, so they're rich, yes. you know. And so I think also, and, and Sam Cooke just talks about that. He's driving this Corvette, what looks like a Corvette, or he's driving a sports car, this expensive car. You know, he talks about all the women he has, you know, all the white women that he is pursuing. Uh, I, there's an interesting yes. note that, like, I guess he stopped getting his nose worked on because he kept getting punched in the nose because he was sleeping with these white women who were in relationships and who were married and the men would punch him in the nose. So that's apparently why his nose looks the way he does because he stopped, I guess, having it reconstructed Oh wow, is what I learned. But I'm just saying that to say that he's living the high life. Jim Brown's career is on the rise. He's a star player. And then you've got... Muhammad Ali, this precocious kid 
who considers himself to be pretty and also arrogant and boastful. Yes. And you've got <laughs> Malcolm, who, as you said, does not own anything, but he's, you know, in the struggle and is a figure in the struggle. Yes. A figurehead. Mm-hmm. But as Sam Cook says, you jump, you jump when Elijah Muhammad tells you to jump. But to your point about religion, you know, I thought that the, that's why I say this film was an activist film, because I do think that not only were they trying to humanize Malcolm, who has been deemed in the American story as this villain, this mean man who is out to kill the white man, and he's radical, and we should not follow that behavior. You know, and I think that some Black folk feel that mm-hmm. way too, you know. But King mm-hmm. made an attempt to humanize him because in that scene where he has that conversation with Jim, we see him get emotional. We see him cry and we see Jim comfort yes. him. And so I was like, oh, we are humanizing. We are saying that this man really was just passionate about Black lives, mm-hmm. about the matter of Black lives. He's passionate about it. And that is what's conveyed in the film. And so you, if you have a heart, you sympathize with him, you know? <laughs> you sympathize with him and just say, he just wanted better for his people. And he spoke with a tone that commanded this kind of justice. But he has heart, too, you know? I also just thought that in the scenes where they did kind of show Islamic faith, particularly when Malcolm and Muhammad get on their knees and they go through the ritual of prayer, of this Islamic prayer, and they're speaking Arabic, you know, it is also a statement to say that this religion is a religion of community. It is a religion that is led with love. It is a religion of fellowship. It is a religion of both sisterhood and brotherhood, and it should be honored and respected. I think that that was very important, and I don't know if King is... Muslim or, you know, has some attachment to the Islamic faith. You know, I do know that she played a Muslim character in American Crime in which she won an Emmy Award, you know. So I have seen kind of Islam come up in her recent work, you know. Um, But I definitely think that that was intentional to really kind of make commentary on the terror and violence that folk who practice Islam face. I love, too, that it shows kind of the ritualistic nature of that and those prayers being done every morning. And Cash is coming to Malcolm and saying, no, I have to do this before I go into this boxing ring. It's required of me even because I I can't do it without this force larger than me behind me. Uh, And I love I love seeing that. I will say the kind of one liners that Malcolm had throughout the film, Mm. it positioned Mm -hmm. him. For me watching, it really positioned him as the sole intellect in the group. And I think I think that kind of dynamic both worked against his character or his personhood for me as a viewer, but also it also made me listen to him, yes, like hearing him say stuff like entertaining white people in the South will bring about the truculence in any black man. That was so true and so resonant, but there were like a lot of those moments and I was just like, okay, is he only these one-liners? Is this, is this his only position? But to your point of the emotion being shown toward the end of the film with him and Jim Brown, 
that was when I really hearkened to him. Well, to your understanding about the one-liner, I do think that that this film worked hard to establish the the iconicity of these people because, you know, King definitely inserted replicas of these iconic photo- photographs, you know, or iconic uh, images of these folk. You see Muhammad Ali in the water, and there's that poster that people have with him holding his fist in the water, and they recreated that. You see Sam Cooke in the silver suit, and there is an iconic video of him in a silver suit. And you see X in the phone book. There's that iconic photo of Malcolm X in the phone booth, and he has that scene where he's in the phone booth, and, and I believe that there it must be an FBI photo or some photographing and it's an iconic photograph of him being watched by the FBI while he's at the phone booth. So she tried to recreate these iconic moments that are etched in our mind. And so I'm wondering if that those one one-liners that you're talking about, I'm wondering if that was just another stamp at stamping who Malcolm X is perceived to be. Mm. But I also think that that happens, you know, like I think, you know, I think it goes back to when we were talking about Sylvie's love, the ways in which I need to see classes come together, you know? And so I think that that is happening in a different way. You mm-hmm. know, obviously, if we're talking about affluence and socioeconomic status, these st- these statuses are coming together, but then you have this intellectual coming together, coming to be in conversation with men who may not have the same understanding or the same tutelage that he had. It just, to me, seemed quite natural, I guess. Mm. You know, and Malcolm X is just known for his word use. He's known for the words that he knows. That's very true. It was one, particularly, where it kind of made me, like, cringe a little bit when he was walking down the staircase from the hotel room. I believe his guard and he were walking to the phone booth. He delivered this one-liner where he said, one can never be too busy for some added perspective. And while all of these quips are very true, it also made me cringe in certain moments because I was just like, I don't... It didn't feel natural to me, I guess is what I'm saying. No, that doesn't sound natural, even when you're stating in that way. And I think that's where we get the theatricality coming onto the stage. Like, a line like that will work for the stage. A line like mm-hmm. that is not necessarily going to work in a screenplay or in cinema. It was jarring. I, I mean, even when you saying that line right there, you know, and I also just want to say again, I want to jump back to the Muslim conversation or the Islamic conversation. I think it's Sam Cooke's character who refers to the Nation of Islam as a gang. And you see Jim Brown kind of alert to that statement. And so I think that, you know, that was just a moment of the screenwriter kind of mentioning this perception that we have of the nation of Islam and that fight that folk who are not of that faith, the ways in which they see the nation, particularly at that time, and trying to kind of undo those stereotypes that we have about the nation and about Islamic faith. Mm. It was interesting, though, that did any of the other men display any type of faith? I don't think so. And I think that's a great question. I don't think so. I mean, well, Sam Cooke, it was 
present just because he comes from a Christian background. His father was a reverend. He incorporated gospel in his music. So I think that was kind of known and understood. And I think, you know, where we see Black folk, the assumption is that we all Baptist. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I ain't grow up Baptist, but the assumption is that that's what we do. We talking in tongues and running praise laps around the place. You know, what do they call it? The charismatic church. I think that's what they call it in the academy. I remember our professor, our mentor, uh, Professor Dag Maui Whoopshet, when we were in um, our Baldwin class and we were reading Go Tell It on the Mountain, they talked. we talked about the charismatic church. So I think that is the assumption mm. that, Black folk are Muslim. You know, we don't think about me practicing Buddhism right now. You know, we don't think about outside of, inside of the American context. I don't even think we think about Black folks, you know, who practice Catholicism. And many Caribbean folk, Mm. you know, are Catholics. I will say, yeah, for me, especially when I went to college, coming from the South, the Bible Belt of Texas, and going up to New York... (laughs) and seeing black folk of all walks of faith or even no faith at all, it was like, oh, okay. We all have these different varying experiences and it's all honored and welcome. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think you're right to gesture to that, the ways in which we're indoctrinated in the South, you know, in thinking that there is one way of being, you know, um, and having to have these life experiences that demonstrate that, what we've been taught is wrong. Well, let's think about, you know, the amazing voice work. Like, they were very specific in in the way Muhammad Ali sound. And while Aldous Hodge does not necessarily look like James Brown, he certainly had his mm-hmm. cool stature, you know, and the coolness of James Brown. You know, he's like, I, I thought I was going to get some pussy tonight. It's one of his lines. Something yep. like that, you know, <laughs> and he says it in this just very, you know, nonchalant way. I thought I was gonna get some pussy tonight. You know what I'm saying? And yep. and, and, and Malcolm <laughs> for the first half of the film definitely sounded like Malcolm. Then in the end, he started sounding southern. On my second watch, I said, "Why he sound like he's from the south? He is from Mount Vernon, New York. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> Why does?" And so then it takes me back to because he is an Australian actor. And so it takes me back to this, you know, what I want to call, and we're going to talk more about this on our episode of Judas and the Black Messiah, but what I'm calling this new kind of Black minstrelsy, you know, casting these Mm. Black actors from different countries and having them speak with these affected American accents, it's it's like Black drag, almost. Ooh. I I did love... Eli Goray's work with Cassius Clay's accent mm-hmm. that struck that struck me like just that Kentucky drawl that was beautifully done and Kingsley Benadir yeah I I mostly actually enjoyed his physical work what he did with Malcolm even just the hand placement on his waist mm-hmm. and the way he would stand when talking with the men mm-hmm. that yeah. was really Really well done. Or his hand on his temple, on the side of his face. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And when he would adjust his glasses with just his index finger and thumb. Right. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, I, I mean, you know, he he looked the part as well. I mean, he looked like a very, a much more handsome Malcolm. I mean, Malcolm X was fine. But, you know, he just was a beautiful man who, you know, put you in the mind of Malcolm. And for the most part, he sounded like him. 
you know, like I said, the last half of the film, there was that Southern drawl that came in that I just was like, I don't understand what's happening right now. Um, but I think that leads us to casting. What do you think about casting? I This kind of goes in tandem, too, with the, more of the voice work, too. I think Leslie Odom Jr. was definitely cast right for the singing part of Sam Cooke's character. In terms of acting, it really, it really felt like a musical theater performance to me. It felt like it felt like he was playing in the clothes of Sam. He wasn't embodying fully. And it made me uncomfortable in some parts because I was just like, I don't know why it is that you're doing that. Like you're not fully invested. I don't know what kind of work he did to prepare for the role. But singing wise, I th- I thought he did great. I, too, struggled with his acting performance. I'm not going to say that it was because of his musical theater background. First of all, just because he he attended Carnegie Mellon, and they produced some very solid actors. And I know that in their musical theater program, acting mm-hmm. is quite important. Um, and I have seen actors from that program, musical theater actors in particular, who act quite well. So I'm not going to say that. What I think is, is that there was something that either Leslie was not unable to tap into or something, there was some barrier that presents the audience from really getting to this role. And I am unsure what that is. Stop. I don't know what that is, but it certainly was something that kept us from getting to the root. I also can't say it was a caricature because I'm not sure that us as an audience, maybe, you know, us as as millennials and definitely Gen Zers, I'm not sure that we know Sam Cooke to even know what the caricature caricature would be. Um, But he wasn't he didn't he didn't come off as a ladies man he didn't come off as sexual you know as a sex symbol he was considered to be very handsome you know he didn't come off as any of those things and so it was very unbelievable as an audience member to tap into this man who's supposed to be this talented sexual icon i was like i'm so sorry um, I just don't see it, mm. you know. Um, but vocally, he was outstanding. Yes. And if he wins awards for the vo- voice of these characters, that's going to be quite interesting and telling of what the Academy has going on. <laughs> um, because I think the fullness of his performance was unsuccessful. Yeah. He was my least favorite character, my f- least favorite actor in the film. Same. And I will say, too, speaking about kind of the compatibility between he, Leslie, and being the kind of this ladies' man figure, I felt that also the relationship between Betty Shabazz and Malcolm in this film, it didn't mesh. The two actors didn't, I didn't feel love between them. I agree with you that there was, I couldn't really, I couldn't grasp the connection between the two. And I'm going to just leave it at that. I'm not going to say I don't know. I I don't know why. You know, Regina King has made lots of comments about the casting in this film. You know, apparently, you know, 
she said that folk in Hollywood wanted to be in this film, but they didn't want to audition. And she said that she cast the actors who speak to her. And so while I did not feel electrified by the character of Betty Shabazz, I said, well, I guess she spoke to Regina King. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I wrote that down, actually, while I was watching. I was interested in if maybe I felt that way because of how we're introduced to them. The first scene that we see Malcolm in is him coming to their home quite frustrated because he has, he has cut ties with one of the leaders from the Nation of Islam. And they're both kind of stressed because they don't own the house that they're living in nor the car. So they're kind of having this discussion slash argument about whether or not that was the right decision. I don't know. Maybe it was because we're introduced to them in this film through that type of scene or that scenario. But even the conversation on the phone, when he talks to her from the hotel, it was, I still didn't feel it. They weren't even in the same room. You know, and I also wonder if that's because there are these huge symbols for Blackness, right? There are these huge figures in Blackness, and so we don't think of them as sexualized. Because that was one of the problems with the play Mountaintop, that apparently the family was very upset, is because Martin was sexualized in that play. We saw the sexual side of him. And for me, it didn't change any it, how I felt about Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King. It didn't make me feel any different about him. You know, it actually made me appreciate him more to, to see him as a human and as a man who had desires and wants and needs outside of the struggle. And so I wonder, you know, because Betty Shabazz seemed so matronly and so uh, common that we we don't see her as a woman who has a sexual identity, mm. you know? And we see her just as this plain matron, matronly woman. And that's what I was going to say earlier in that, like, we've got Malcolm, who is, especially in this particular iteration, is so beautiful. And then they make Jaquina look so plain Jane. I think that also, to me, kind of disallows any kind of potential for desire between the two. Mm. When you say that, is that through costuming or how do they achieve that? I think all of that. I think it's through costuming. I think it's through her stature. I think it's through the way she approached the character. And then I think just by seeing Malcolm, you know, he looks like Malcolm, but he's also just this beautiful iteration of Malcolm. You know, this clean, beautiful, with this gorgeous smile. Like he smiled, like when he's chastising Sam Cooke, he did this smile. And I was like, oh God, like my... We'll just say, I, I felt away. And, <laughs> and I was just like, damn, like that smile, like it, it lit up the screen. And actually, when, when he smiled, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to see him in a role that's not a historical figure. Like I want to see him play a leading man because he just was so handsome. And then you see her and she's just depressed and sad and taking care of the children. And so you don't think that they could have a sexual, like you wonder, well, what is a sexual life like for a woman that's home worried for this man out here fighting the fight? What is their sex? How did they make these babies? At least that's how I think. And so that's what mm. I, that's what I, I think was challenging in, in engaging and understanding the rapport between Betty Shabazz and Malcolm X. Say more about the casting because there was some um, discrepancy too with who was going to play Cassius, right? 
So it wasn't for this film there wasn't any discrepancy, but both Kingsley Benadir and Eli Goray were up for the same role of Cassius Clay in a different film made by mm. Ang Lee, I believe. And it never actually got put out or was never released, but they were actually both in like the last round for the role. And it's interesting that they get to work on this project together with, you know, Eli, of course, playing Cassius and Kingsley playing Malcolm. And the two of them have talked about this in interviews. Did either one of them uh, actually play the role in that other film? Kingsley booked the role. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I would love to see that film. He said he's aged out of that character now. Well, that's true. He certainly does not look like he's in his 20s. And, you know, he's also fair-skinned. And, you know, they have challenges as they age. So, but... (laughs) But anyway, you know, we've been talking about this a lot. I think it's, you know, with these political films... A.T., what do you think it means to watch this film in 2021? Beyond me almost falling asleep on it, I believe this film... This film brings these historic figures to life for me as, again, a Gen Zer. And, you know, it's one thing to read about these figures and to read about them always, usually, as individual and never having even thought of the concept of them being in the same room, having conversation about Black liberation and their visions for what that looks like. And so I love that that has been put into action. And I thank Kim Powers for that, for writing that, and Regina King for directing it. So, yeah, I'm appreciative of this work as much as it made me fall asleep. I think that it is super important to this moment. I think that the statement that resonated with me as I left the film is that we, whatever position we play, in this country, whatever position we play in this fight for equality, justice, and liberation is that we must fight. And some of us might do it in a more radical way, and someone, some of us might do it in an understated way. But I think it's important. I think it's important for Black folk to be open to the depth of religion. I think that this film and film is asking us to not use religion uh, as a weapon, but use it as a source of love and replenishment, you know? And to think about the ways in which we can be violent toward others because their beliefs don't mirror our own. I'm excited for, you know, the future of these actors, particularly um, Kingsley Benadir. I'd like to see more of him. and maybe even Eli Gorey. I mean, you know, I, I get, you know, he's new, right? So we're going to see him as Muhammad. Yes. So I hope that he doesn't have any trouble stepping outside of the image of Cassius Clay. You know, um, I'd like to see if he can do other things. I really appreciated how Regina blocked the characters, too, especially in those scenes on the rooftop and in the room when the arguments got really heated between Sam Cooke and Malcolm, they were always on the opposite sides of the group. They'd kind of be in this line always. And it was almost as if it was this kind of barometer of, you know, radicalism to (laughs) him supporting capitalism fully. And I really appreciated that. That's smart directing. 
I think that this was a great first run as a debut director. I think she should be very proud of herself. I am so excited, you know, to see what she's going to produce moving forward. I really am, because I thought that she did a great job. I thought that the film aesthetically was beautiful. You know, I think that she's going to take away some things, and I think she's going to get the resounding agreement that the beginning of this film was quite slow for AT and probably many other Gen Zers. It was very slow from the top to bottom. Um, (laughs) Oh, my other call-out, oh, my God, is... I loved the scene with Sam Cooke where Jam- Jackie Wilson has pulled the sound, paid the man <laughs> to fuck up the sound. And, you know, mm-hmm. he starts the audience to, jo- to join in together in a beat. And he sings over the beat and everybody is stomping on beat and clapping together, being his percussion for the song. I thought it was so black. It reminded me like if you at church, you know, and the music go out and say, I don't need no music. And, you know, they just go on in and we start singing and jamming. We at the party on the radio don't work. We can make our own music. No music. Uh, 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 uh. Yes, and it's just what Black people do. So I thought that moment was so Black, so beautiful. I was literally in the house with my fist raised in the air like, go on, girl. You did that. (laughs) You made that moment. My pull-in is for Leslie Odom Jr. I don't know what it is you need to tap into. I don't know what it is you need to do to allow audiences to really pull into your performance, but I encourage you and challenge you to really do some work so that we can really see your heart in your performances, because I think that that was missing. And I think that if he had had, you know, his heart, it's so funny, he claims, I really think a publicist told him to say this, but I heard in an interview that he did with USA Today, he claims that he turned down the role at first, and he didn't want to mm-hmm. do it, but that his agents and managers, his team encouraged him to do it. I don't believe that for one second, <laughs> but I've heard him say He that. also said he was asked to do the stage version as well a couple of times. Right. No, he said he did a stage reading of it. I, I heard mm. that he had done a stage reading um, of Sam Cooke, and so my thing is, is that your your film career ain't popping like that. Before this, all I saw you in was Law and Order, and the Nationwide is on your side. So you needed this role, and we know you needed it. But anyway, in the future, moving forward, put your heart into it. And if your heart was into it, think about why we couldn't see it and we couldn't feel it. Only when you sang, because you do have the gift of song. Yes. That's Cynthia Rivo's friend, y'all. Oh, well, then that's it. That's why I can't get into it. Okay, there it is. <laughs> well, we thank y'all for listening. AT, drop your handle. At artsy.allen. I am at The Shade Smith. We want you all to listen. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please follow. Please like it. Please share. Tell your mommy, your auntie, your cousin. Everybody, that bitch down the street that you don't like, when you see her, (laughs) okay, tell her to watch Performing Black. And y'all hit us in the DMs and let us know what you're thinking. Thank you for listening, y'all.